Uh, from the shadow of Rockford Tower in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast, friends and comrades, this is your Highlands Bunker podcast. Super producer Carl is monitoring proceedings from a remote, secure location. Today, I am happy to present episode number two in the Justice Delaware Justice Team series. Um, these podcasts are produced in collaboration with the ACLU of Delaware and the Delaware Call. As you know, the Delaware Call is the state's premier progressive online magazine. Got to keep reminding everyone of that. Uh, today's episode will be focused on education equity as a social justice issue, and I am happy to have zooming in uh, two esteemed guests. Uh, introducing first, Shannon Griffin. Shannon is a senior policy advocate for the ACLU of Delaware and has managed educational and workforce programs for the Metropolitan Wilmington Urban League. Uh, Shannon, thanks so much for taking the time. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Uh, I want to also welcome uh, Dr. Melva Ware. Dr. Ware is a researcher at the Delaware Center for Teacher Education at the University of Delaware. Her expertise is in social, political, and curricular factors that influence schooling outcomes for underrepresented minority and low-income students. And uh, although it is Dr. Ware, um, she informed me she's not that kind of doctor. So Melva, welcome to the podcast. And thank you very much. And, and I need a, an additional correction, which is that I am retired from my work at the Delaware Center for Teacher Education and have been for a few years now. Okay. Though, uh, that, remain, that remains my last professional affiliation. Well, we'll we'll just call you an all-around researcher with no uh, no current <laughs> professional or, or orientation. But thank you very much um, for for joining the discussion today. Um, I usually I start these out usually um, by asking people about just their background um, and sort of what motivated them uh, when they were younger, what kind of family experiences that they have that kind of influenced them to get into social justice work. And I think it's even more relevant today as we talk about education because. You know, education and development as a child is something everybody goes through because we've all been there. Um, so I'm very interested in, in sort of um, where you're from and, and how you grew up and sort of what your motivations and influences were. Uh, maybe, Shannon, you could uh, start us off. Sure. So I'll try to give you the penny version because I'm, I'm getting a little longer in the tooth so I could go back a ways. But <laughs> um, basically, why this, why social justice um, and why am I? Uh, uh, why have I been in this work for so long? Um, I had grew up pretty much in a single family home and we, I was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. We moved from Baltimore City to Baltimore County and my mom immediately re recognized that there was a much better quality of school. Um, although she wasn't often able to participate in a lot of the, you know, in school things because she actually held down two jobs for most of my educational career. Um, but she recognized the value of education. And so we, she saw really quickly that we were, I was gonna get a much better education in the county schools than I would have had we remained in the city schools. And this was during the late seventies um, and eighties. And so we had to move back for a temporary time back into the city because my mom lost one of her jobs. And so we moved back into the city and um, I and I did not want to go to the city schools. My mom did not want me to go to the city schools. And so I was able to work out an arrangement with one of my best friends and my best friend's family who still lived in the county um, to continue to, to uh, go to our same, my same school. And I lived in fear for like, I don't know, five years until we moved back because, you know, it was like, oh my God, if they realize that I'm not actually technically a, still a resident here in the county, they're going to expel me. And so I lived in fear, but I realized that um, that I wanted to be there. I knew the importance of, of, of education. And so um, that it shouldn't matter where, where a child lived, right? Their zip code should not determine the level education that they have access to. I learned that really early on, um, from middle school on actually. And having my own children, eventually having my, marrying, having my own children and having to advocate for them. Um, two boys, glad to say we are now empty nesters. We made it through, um, but it was a journey. And so I really put my advocacy hat on full force when I had to navigate the educational and seeing equitable treatment seeing how they we had to fight for them to get into more of the advanced kind of classes when they had the same kind of um they had the they had the qualifications i would say um but the access wasn't always open to them readily available 
And so having to be a constant advocate for them um, really helped to drive me to, to, do, to, to do the work that I'm doing because it, unfortunately, too many of our parents still have to be um, you know, super engaged and super vocal to make sure that their kids are getting a decent education. Um, and so that's why I do the work that I do. Um, social justice is a whole but educational uh, reform mainly is why I do what I do. Well, that's going to be interesting because one of the things we talk about, I mean, it's, I mean, obviously it still goes on and we have the same dynamic here, um, not just within particular zip codes and school districts, but, um, you know, more affluent parents will will move, uh, you know, to Kent, Kent Square or Chad's Ford. Uh, or you know somewhere in Pennsylvania uh, because they can afford a, a bigger home they can afford the taxes and, and so they, they do it that way uh, obviously we have you know s- parochial schools and private schools that are very popular with the affluent people here too so again that's something we're still talking about so it's just very that, that was your experience on both sides of that fence too growing up and yeah it makes a lot of sense why you would want to address things like that um, Melva what um what is your your background and and how did you get into a, a life of uh, of teaching and, and and academia? Well, I I, I want to address the social justice piece of this because I was actually born into it. My mom grew up with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Atlanta, and took piano lessons from his mother, and became the PTA president at the local school district and advocated for new textbooks in segregated schools that my sister and I as young children were attending. So the mantle of being a social justice advocate and ally is is really passed to me from my mother. Uh, And I couldn't be prouder of it. Now, my my own experiences uh, in desegregating the schools in Atlanta, Georgia, where, um, you know, we experienced uh, really unfortunate situations. We think that some of the push out behaviors are unfortunate when children are are suspended from school for not having a pencil or touching the light switch when they're not supposed to. Um, but we, we actually experienced being called names in the hallways, uh, being told that we didn't belong, being told to get out, being told by guidance counselors that we couldn't, uh, we couldn't go to college because we didn't have the background. So the struggle for equal educational opportunities was an ongoing one for those of us from the South. And of course, Rob, you see my gray hair. So uh, I'm dating myself, but I think it's it's really significant to note that while um, clearly with a strong family uh, background and structure around us, uh, my, my siblings and I did quite well. Um, we all had access to higher education, but it was not without the same kind of struggle that Shannon's family experienced. And then even later, I'm married to a law professor and I have a PhD in education and we experienced exactly some of the same kinds of things with our one and only son um, being in the Alexandria, Virginia public schools because that's where we were living uh, during that period of his life. Um, I've worked at every level in education. My undergraduate training was in in secondary English and psychology, Uh, but I, and I taught for a number of years um, and, and I'm very glad that I had that experience, but decided that I wanted to have greater impact on what happens to kids in schools. So I sought additional, you know, in education, you get another degree, you get another level of work. Uh, and, 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 and I did, I climbed a little bit, but decided that I didn't want to study those issues from the perspective of the institutions that employed me. I wanted to study those the issues of education, education equity, um, and motivation for education. I wanted to study those issues from the perspective of students and families. So I ended up um, in a degree program that allowed me um, to do kind of a counseling psychology, hybrid higher ed access 
uh, degree program out in St. Louis, uh, ultimately. Um, so it just, you know, and, and, and it, with that background and, and achieving uh, some success in bringing services into communities that are uh, into communities that lack services, some of the services that are now identified by people who are advocates for education equity as critical. And I do, I hope that a part of this conversation will allow us to talk about what, uh, how do we define equity? I mean, most, you know, we, we, tr we traditionally talk about money and resources, but that is like a first notch. And so hopefully we'll, we'll get into uh, some of the other issues that, that qualify as equity issues and the importance of not losing sight of them. So my work over the last 25 or 30 years has been work, to, working with under-resourced communities predominantly to make sure that there is an information base, there is a, there is a system that allows us to develop relationships so that people value the information that they're given and there are opportunities for students and parents to push the buttons, the levers of power and gain access to the kinds of, of opportunities, enrichment, the steps that get kids into functioning higher education um, um, opportunities. Um, so I've, I'll stop there. I did that work. Um, I've done that work in multiple communities. I last did it officially at the University of Delaware. Well, I will say, uh, if you want to compare gray, you can see all the gray in my in my beard here. <laughs> and I don't want to compare Herrick because I haven't really had any. So, as you can see, as you can see, young Carl always gives his profile, and I feel like sometimes when I see that, he's mocking me with his full head of brown hair. Um, so, I, I I feel solidarity with you on that for sure. Um, I, I feel like you may have seen some of my notes because um, this is sort of exactly the way I wanted to drive the conversation. I did want to talk about funding as the first issue just to sort of level set where we are because we have uh you know tax reassessment that's um, finally gone through the litigation um but there's still sort of lawsuits and other political wranglings going on about that and i kind of wanted to level set everybody but i also then wanted to sort of jump off and talk about um how how these funds get distributed and what are the categories um that, that sort of drive the money where it needs to go so that we can start solving real inequities. Because, the, you know, obviously the, the, the history that you explained in de actually desegregating schools in the South, um, you know, that's explicit, um, you know, just racism and segregation and, 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 and injustice. Um, but the injustices that are there by zip code or you know, where low income people are, where minority students are, the injustices are still there. We're trying to spread them out, uh, but we're not doing a very good job of it. And so that's really is what I want to get into um, uh, uh, the most. But uh, maybe Shannon, can you sort of explain what the situation is with the with the legislative sort of tax reassessment and and where that is and how that will help? And then we'll start talking about like the real sort of details about measuring inequities and educational justice, basically. Sure, sure. So um, a lot of your listeners are probably already aware of the recent um, lawsuit settlement. Um, why that why that is so important is because it helped to um, finally force the state to recognize the funding inequities, longstanding funding inequities um, that's driven by um, you know where where the most experienced teachers teach and want to teach, and how they how they're moved around. Um, it's driven by you, you mentioned referenda, so it's been driven by tax the tax base. Um, and so you know they there've been some there've been some initiatives over the years to try to rectify that situation. It has not it has persisted. Um, and so you have schools where where there are um, low income communities, lower income families who are attending um, schools, you know, um, at greater rates, and they're actually less resourced from a state level than schools that are more affluent, right? Which, which you're like, well, that makes sense. Well, because it doesn't make any sense. And so the lawsuit helps to address that by providing um, some permanent opportunity funding. This was, this was a pocket of money 
um, that the governor had actually allocated uh, a few years ago, a few years ago, to those high needs schools. This will make that money more permanent. Actually, twenty five million dollars um, in this coming school year, and then eventually sixty million dollars by twenty twenty four twenty five. Also, I think that the lawsuit does um, it's it provides uh, more more uh, it directs more funding to English language learners those that learners or that English is not their first language. Um, it also goes to um, low income students, so it provides more funding for, for students who have come from low income. Back. It also expands um, pre K uh, uh, programming so that more 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 low income families can actually get their students into uh, full day kindergarten classes and and, and stronger pre-K programs. Um, it also provides a special education funding at the K to third grade level. Right now, before this, the state funded uh, special education starting at the fourth grade and the districts were required to then use their local to provide special education funding from K to three. This helps to alleviate that on the district side. Um, it will require this, the state to establish an ombudsperson office, which is now a program that is, a, is supposed to be uh, established so that it's an advocacy opportunity uh, for parents to help navigate through the system to provide some um, some more um, some more specific supports if there's any kind of uh, uh, conflict. So we're talking about when we get into suspensions and expulsions and those kinds of things. To make sure that they're getting due, students are getting due process um, and and be more proactive versus reactive in the way that schools um, supports families. So that's part, some of what it does um, when it gets to reassessment. So um, they all the counties have settled um, and and have agreed to go into a, re, a reassessment, um, but we're probably still looking at a couple years off because they're going to have to. Um, identify uh, uh, someone that's going to actually go in to do all of the reassessments, and and because it's been it hasn't been done for so long statewide, that's going to take some time. So I don't ex I don't expect that those monies to really come on board um, to be in, in impactful within the next I would say three to five years maybe. Um, yeah. But change is coming. I, I think that this highlight just the fact that the state had to acknowledge. That they had not been funding um, students who needed the more the most resources adequately, um, in my mind, is a win, right? And so we always can use more money, and I think, but we need to better direct those funds, right? Because money isn't the end all be all, but it is really important. But how we spend that money is just as important as the as the amount of money that we're provided. So let me just. Um make sure I understand sort of where we are. So there was an initial sort of executive injection of money that was approved, I guess, a year ago that did, um, that, <clears throat> that, that, that was funded. The, the legislation now is asking that to, uh, to go up and be permanent. Uh, and then the dispersal of those funds, if this is approved, would be, would be based and targeted uh, based on the criteria and sort of the, the general targeting that you talked about. Do I have that right? Yes, correct. So, so the, so the fo main focus areas will be English language learners, low income uh, students, um, and getting more funds for our uh, for for special education at the K to third grade level, as perfect. well as expanding uh, kindergarten students. Perfect, perfect. So, uh, Melva, let's talk about targeting this uh, this money and how we how we create measurements and, and criteria to be able to target it and, and really what that means. So not only when we say we're going to target um, low income, uh, how do we measure that, number one? And number two, uh, what are the outcomes that we see that are so divergent that we can, uh, with resources, start to, start to target um, these type of things? Well, the first thing I think we have to acknowledge is that there have been major infusions of federal money over time for all the targeted populations that uh, our recent state um, allocations are, are targeting. So there's been no child left behind money. There's been every student succeeds money. There race is Title I money. There's race to the top money. There is money 
floating around in our education system. And I agree that it's 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 not enough, perhaps, but I am equally concerned um, about how it's how it's allocated and how it's spent, how it's targeted. If we continue to fund mostly remediation, okay, those things that are supposed to correct deficits. So if we continue to treat all these needy children, poor children as deficits, they will never achieve a level playing field. So I, I would direct your listeners and people who are interested in, in, in equity funding, education equity, I would direct them to some uh, fairly recent publications of uh, co-authored by the Alliance for Resource Equity and the Education Trust. And these are high, just right off the press. And if you Google educationresourceequity.org, you will you'll find a website that actually outlines the 10 dimensions of education resource equity. For the purposes of having conversations, I've reduced the 10 to the six hot button items that I've experienced in my work as critical, okay? So number one, funding, school funding. And yes, we need to, if children need special education services before third or fourth grade, school, school, the school district should have that money coming from the state. There's no question about that. But the, the making, cert, making certain that that money only follows children who have learning deficits uh, is, is, is really our Achilles heel. So the, the funding is needed to level the playing field, to make sure that children from, who come from resource poor environments have the same high quality enrichment experiences that children in the suburbs have. have. How do you know what you want to do when you grow up if you don't see people working, if you don't visit a college campus early on or, or visit um, a, a lab at a community college? If you don't have experiences that help um, lower income families begin to envision what the future can be for their children and the children themselves. The, the sex, so that would be, you know, so it's, 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 it's making certain that funding flows to high quality experiences for low income children that give them a similar experiential background, never the same because, you know, you go to home to the home that you go to, but all children should get to go to the zoo or visit a, a library or, or, or go to a symphony or go to Washington DC and tour the monuments. The second area identified by this group of, of that I've lumped together now are strong, competent school leaders and teachers. And this doesn't mean people who are highly degreed or have tons of years of experience always. It mostly means people who understand human development and who are aware of and proactive with regard to the legacy of discrimination and racism. So people who see themselves in their students and families. Uh, they should come from diverse backgrounds. Not only black people can advocate for black children, uh, not only white people can advocate for Latino children. So uh, it has to be a community of people who, have, who come to some understanding of the purpose of education, of one of the purposes of education being the empowerment of students to, to, to live the lives in the future that they want and to overcome historic uh, discrimination. So people with um, diverse backgrounds who want the same outcomes for the children that they work with as they want for their own children and their families. Uh, and this is huge. This is huge. You, you'd be surprised at how many times I've you know, I've walked through hallways and watched teachers cluster around um, Xerox machines, look, watching, looking at their watches and waiting for the 3.30 hour so that they can escape from this environment with these children that they don't know and that they don't like. And I wish that I wish that this was an anomaly, but I can tell you that I've been in a lot of schools in Delaware and it certainly isn't. Uh, the, thir the third area, 
and this is one that's often really overlooked, is rigorous curriculum. Um, there have been longitudinal studies over time, starting in about the 1970s, that identified the correlates of seamless movement of children level to level, including their access to post-secondary and career preparatory opportunities being, being referenced. So the way that you can know whether a child is on that track is based on the, their exposure to rigor throughout their educational lives. So when, when, you, when, 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 when children in su suburban schools have opportunities to access courses like algebra in eighth grade, but children in urban schools and regular kids don't have those opportunities, you've already, I mean, you've just taken another chink away from the leveling of the playing field. So children need, need access to, 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 uh, to rigor and they need to be pushed, which is called acceleration, as opposed to focusing on filling gaps, creative uh, teaching methods, opportunities for problem-based learning, project-based learning, push kids to learn because they need the knowledge to do something that's useful to them. And certainly when you start offering children rigorous courses, algebra in the eighth grade, um, see a, um, college prep courses beginning sometimes in the sixth grade, and certainly uh, courses that prepare kids for the rigor of, of higher education, sometimes those kids Typically, those kids will need wraparound services that can include tutoring, peer tutoring, peer mentoring, relationships within the community where people share knowledge that they use in their everyday lives. So engineers coming into schools to do projects with students would be some of the kinds of, of ways that uh, curriculum can be accelerated. So a focus on acceleration versus remediation and, ca and catch up, the, the, prepar the provision of wraparound support services and a culture, creating a culture in schools where help seeking is the norm. So if Shannon knows how to do quadratic equations and I'm having trouble with that, if the culture lends itself to me saying, Shannon, how did you solve for X over there? And, 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 and it's, it's normalized that Shannon would stop doing what she's doing and she would explain the process to me in her own language. It may mean that the teacher's job is aided by the students. So this is all about setting the table with culture, which gets us to what is the fourth area of equity, and it's the one that the ACLU has been most concerned about, and it's ending the push out behavior. It's ending the culture of exclusion where the bad kids get suspended and creating a restorative culture where problem solving and developing human relationships constitutes the way people interact. So instead of, of, of punitive systems that push kids who have issues sometimes and you know who doesn't have issues sometimes but kids who who bring their home lives into schools need some time sometimes to debrief and unload within community and the if schools are only organized to push kids out then that help seeking that culture of conversation and problem solving is not allowed uh, to flourish. And sometimes people just simply don't want it. You know, zero there. We have operated for years and years. And this is one of the things that the, um, the, the new legislation pushes us to do is get rid of zero tolerance discipline policies that push kids into suspension in school and out of school and ultimately into uh, the criminal justice system. Um, high quality early learning is certainly um, in, in evidence as an, uh, an ed resource equity issue. I won't say more about that because it's really quite evident if you know some kids come to school knowing 400 words and some kids come to school knowing 1500 words, the kindergarten teacher has a real balancing act to do there.
And then finally, on my abbreviated list of education, resource education equity issues is a good learning environment, which means the positive, clean, well-lit, repaired buildings with all the learning resources that kids need, the technology, science labs, um, tutors when they are needed, clubs and enrichment activities, diverse role models, um, and functioning school-wide so that the only people of color that children see are not in, in their school buildings, are not the janitor and the cafeteria lady, but the principal, the, at every level, they are seeing people who represent um, the people in their, in their lives and in their communities. So that's my kind of quick and dirty where the money needs to go. And you can see that it's a lot more complex than just saying these schools need more money. Those schools have had more money over time. It's what have we done with the money? Yeah, I kind of I want to focus in on a few of these and everybody can kind of jump in um, as as they as they wish, I guess. Um, first is environment and and push out. Um, and, and you guys can speak to this as, as much or as little as you as you want to, but. I've had uh, many conversations about what they call school choice um, and what they, you know, charter schools, especially in Delaware, are very big um, to, to identify, you know, um, to identify uh, a particular type of student and give that student the opportunity maybe that they wouldn't have before. My personal view um, is it's just another sort of uh, selection criteria um, that goes against everything to me, goes against everything you were just talking about, about how to build sort of a holistic approach to what a school should be for the children in the community. And I, I don't know, um, you know, if you guys have any sort of opinion on how that plays against sort of what what I what I sort of characterize as a holistic approach. You know, it's the environment. It's the, the you know, number two is the leadership and the teachers sort of need to be community-based. Um, I, I feel like t making it a making it a consumer choice for an individual is anathema to this kind of approach. Um, maybe Shannon, I don't know if you have a, a comment on that. I'll put you on the spot and you can say something. right. Well, so I think you know the the the, the charter, which which is a public school, so public charter versus traditional charter is always a hot button issue for a lot of folks, right? And I, 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 and as, as a parent who has used choice that has gone to charter, my kids were in parochial school, they were in private school, they all graduated from public school. Shout out to Middletown High School. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I think, I think, I think we're having, it, it pits parents against parents, it pits school folks against school folks, and I think that's the wrong kind of conversation to have. I think that um, we, first of all, we've always had choice because more affluent parents can move if they don't like the schools in their area, right? So that is choice. Um, or they can go to private schools. And so we've always had choice. So the idea that if we if we just eliminate choice and we make kids go to where they live, everything is going to be just wonderful and great. I just, I, I honestly don't believe that. I think, yes, more resources would be able to be the better be able to be pulled together but that in and of itself just eliminating choice i don't think what's going to eliminate issues that we that we see here that we have seen for a long time um when you talk about the selective criteria of schools um for the most part most most charter schools in delaware um are not are not like this you know high bar selective there are a couple that are quite frankly, problematic in how they do and how they select um, students. And that's something that people have been complaining about and been trying to do something about since their inception. Um, I think that we have, if, if, if we had more high, if we had more high quality options, right? And in, in, in traditional public schools, then then parents will opt to stay, they have their kids stay there, right? So it's kind of like, let's stop arguing or, 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 you know, force or, or, having having 
you know, p parents like, well, if, if you go to charter, you're bad or, you know, you, or if you and if you eliminate your, your public school, that's not a good thing. Or if you only stay in public school, you know, that's the way to go. Um, how about we work to make sure that all of our schools are highly functioning and, and are meeting the needs of our students, right? And and I think if we do that, then we there, will, there, will, there could be less of a concern about what school you're going to. All of our schools should be great, right? Like yeah, no, all, I, all, all of our schools should be good. I can I agree, and and I I I guess I want to make clear too, and you know I've had this I've recorded some conversations on this. I, people can go back and, and and listen to them and get my full view on it. Um, I certainly don't think pitting you know, parents against parents or saying you're good if you do this or you're bad if you do that or that there's some sort of be there's, a, there's some sort of moral choice that you're supposed to make as an individual. I, I don't think that um, I guess I used to use the example of the post office and maybe this is kind of dating <laughs> dating me too. Um, and the post office has had a hell of a time here in the last couple of years. But um, you could also use the fire department, you know, whatever, whatever kind of example you wanted to use. No one would accept that the standard uh, at the fire department in my neighborhood, we had the best firefighters, they had the best equipment, they got there the fastest, and the safety was great. And then in another neighborhood, they actually don't have good equipment, they don't have as many firefighters, um, the ones they do have, you know, the, cri the criteria is a little, you know, to get in our department, it's, you know, it's the, the level is higher, we have more experienced people. Um, you know, we wouldn't accept that. We wouldn't accept... Um, sort of that, but and but we accept it with like kids, and 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 then <clears throat> what what I what I think about choice is that yes, there's always been choice, but if that's the direction we go in, we're going too far in the other direction, and we're not focusing on the core, sort of the core things that could that could impact everybody. If we changed our sort of mindset about how we're delivering the service that that educates and develops you know, almost every kid in the country. Um, but yeah, I, you're, you're getting into, okay. So Rob, you're getting into some, some issues that are central to America itself. <laughs> okay. See, that's what I do. I do do that sometimes. Yeah. I, I'm, so, prone, so, I'm so, prone to do that. Yes. So the issues of why, you know, well, why, why do we allow that? Well, heck, why do we allow a lot of the kind of structural uh, uh, racist policies and practices in this country? Education is just one of those sectors that it's evident in, right? Um, and so as, as community, you know, we have to all decide that we're not going to continue to allow that to say that it's okay, right? And we are going to push for policy changes, practice changes that would alleviate that. I mean, that that's really, I think, just central to the, our core issues or problems we have as a society. And I know it's probably way too like, woo, but I think that's that's that what we see in education is just symbolic of that. Yeah. And I guess you're I, I think that that's exactly why I raise that point in, in different topics is, is to sort of show people that this this sort of mindset bleeds into uh, public policy. And it's to our detriment if we don't start thinking different ways about how we uh, how how we put these systems together for sure. Um uh, so my next question, uh, and maybe Melva can can give me her her feelings on it because I think she'll probably have some strong ones. Um, you know, you mentioned some federal funding that had come down the line before, uh, whether it's No Child Left Behind, Race to the Top, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, a lot of that uh, talk was about testing and being able to develop testing that will be able to, so we can measure, you know, success. Uh, in some fashion. And I think that that has become extremely controversial. Number one, I noticed that it didn't appear on, uh, you know, your, your short list of six. Um, and, and while, and, and while, you know, obviously we want a mechanism to, you know, demonstrate profi proficiency in, you know, uh, algebra or English or, or whatever, I understand that. Um, I, I, I don't know a, a good, I, I, I think testing is a bad way to do it. Um, in the way that it's done, at least, and um, maybe you can talk a little bit about academic testing as a um, as a as a measurement of quote success, uh, and some of the other ways that you can measure sort of outcomes outside of sort of a standardized test environment. 
Well, standardized tests are just sorting mechanisms. And you do realize that before the era of desegregation, there was much, much less emphasis on standardized tests to gain access to any kind of professional preparation. Tests, to, uh, and, and, and there, there are significant studies that indicate that there, there's test, there's bias in this, in the language, in the, in the, in the way that, that, that uh, problems are presented in standardized test forms that discriminate against children who live in linguistic subcultures. Much, um, much better evidence of schooling proficiency is actually course taking behavior and grades of students in environments where there are teachers who are competent and helpful and caring. And then the movement, the seamless movement of children from level to level. So their, their middle school to high school um, matriculation rate, and then their ninth, there's tremendous dropout in some schools and districts between ninth grade and 11th grade. So the, the retention of students ninth to 11th grade, and then uh, again, they're, they're the, the, the academic measures that really mean more to their, their future success, things like course taking and grades in courses. So kids who stay in, in a solid academic track and who manage to make grades at the 2.5 level and higher, which I think is really too modest, but at 2.5 in Delaware, you get a child who graduates with that grade point average and no criminal background. They have their first two years of college paid for at the junior college level. So they're, 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 they're mechanisms that make sense as opposed to sorting tools that are disconnected typically from, from um, the realities of kids actually matriculating level to level. And there's good evidence at this point that even the SAT scores, um, and some schools have eliminated the requirement from those, that they only predict um, academic success and retention in the first semester of undergraduate training that beyond that it's a it's where it's a kid's motivation to get it right their ability to seek help their ability to use the mechanics of the institution uh, to stay on top of their coursework so you've got to move the locus of control from the external world these test scores that don't mean anything to the internal world what is it that you know what what is it that pushes a kid to, to actually spend an extra two hours with their math homework and call up a friend to ask how to solve a problem. What, what at the other end of these experiences would be a motivating factor? And that's why you gotta go all the way back to how the money is spent. If a kid is only told to do this work because I say do it, but not because it, it prepares them for something that they envision for their own lives, like making it to Adele State to play football or become a pilot, let's say, okay, then, then, then you haven't tapped into those internal um, motivation mechanisms that actually prepare kids for the, for the, with the grit, for the long struggle that is all of our struggle to become who we've become. So I, I know that's a, that's a kind of convoluted answer, but uh, standardized test scores um, are, are basically an artificial mechanism that allows us to sort Eurocentric thinkers to the top and other people um, into lesser categories. That's a great answer. It's I, I, I don't think it's convoluted at all. I, I think it goes back to what we were saying before about just sort of taking a holistic approach and figuring out what works well, not what uh, we think is the best way to, you know, rank order something on a spreadsheet. I don't think that's the way to do it. Um, I, I am a little concerned. I'm glad that you've retired now from the University of Delaware so you don't have access to any of their systems because you said a 2.5 is a little too modest. So I'm glad you can't go back and see what kind of grades I was doing. <laughs> I was like, whoo, she can't get into that UD system, thank goodness. Uh. Well, no, I, I think kids kids are capable of far better than a 2.5, okay? Uh, but and, and that gets you the seed money for the first two years. 
I don't think it gets you the scholarship to finish the four-year process because kids can get into seed and they can take those credits straight to UD or DSU and probably to Wilmu and some of the others. But I don't think you can do that at the 2.5. That'll get you in the door. The bigger problem, Rob, that we've had is that some kids finish high school with the 2.5. They get to the they get to Dell Tech Community College and they take the these are uh, criterion referenced tests, you know, so the, the test that tells you whether you can do certain math kinds of math problems and whether you can conjugate sentences and that kind of thing, which is essential. Those are real tests, right? So kids get to the junior college level and they have to take what's called the placement test and they don't place into the courses that give them credit for in, in towards the degrees that they want or towards the certificates that they want. And those are huge issues for our K-12 system because it means that some kids are actually floating through and mm -hmm. teachers are giving them, you know, the, the C, but they don't have the mastery of the content. Well, I want to um, ask one more sort of Jermaine question to this and then um, another topic came up just before we got on that I kind of want your uh, guys opinion on but uh, the, the last big subtopic that we talked about about equity and what education equity would mean is environment um, it's you know a clean school school that has you know um, the amenities that everybody else has um, you know has is up to snuff from a maintenance perspective um, etc I attended a red clay meeting uh, last year um, to speak against um, armed police in schools um, because it didn't seem, you know, when you talked about like leadership and teaching and community and stuff, I, you know, you didn't mention like who should be armed in the school. Like, I don't think anybody should be. I don't think it lends itself to a an environment where people feel safe. I think some teachers feel safe. Um which is another question, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I've spoken up against that, and I know that there has been a little bit of a rumble in the state about sort of addressing this issue, and I think it does come down to the environment issue. Um, I don't know who wants to take it. Maybe, Shannon, if you have a, a position on it just from, from yourself, or, or you can just talk about the topic in general. Oh, do I? Yes. <laughs> so, um, in a nutshell, um, school resource officers um, do not, need to be in our schools, period, full stop. Um, research is clear that they do not add, add they do not actually add added safety. Um, in fact, for too many of our students, um, they are anxiety inducing um, and they they feel unsafe um, in the in the in their presence. And so um, how they're trained varies wide, widely across the state. Um, how they're supervised uh, is widely different across the state. Um, and those resources that school districts are paying for armed officers in our school buildings, that money could be redirected for folks who actually know child development, who can do the same kind of de-escalation, who can build relationships with families and students um, to do the kind of safekeeping the reason why we say we need to have officers in our buildings in the first place. Um, when we look at mass shootings, God forbid we don't ha we won't have any here in Delaware. When we look across the other states that have had had them, um, ninety eight percent of them have had resource officers in those buildings, and they did not stop shooting, right? And so it's about. And then you look at well, what people say all often what I hear is well, we have to protect kids from outside intruders. Well. Those the, the 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 folks that are doing the shooting are students that belong to that school. So there are students who did not have a sense of belonging, who had issues that didn't that went unchecked, right? They weren't tied to services and resources that can help help them. So they then become the violent entity in their own school building, right? So it's not like you know some random Joe Schmo off the street is going to come into your School. No, it's going to be a kid who feels disconnected, who has other issues going on, who resorts to that kind of 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 of, of, ish, of, of response, right? And so it's about how do we then 
um, empower uh, uh, our, our, our educators? How do we get the kind of uh, mental health resources to bear in our school buildings? And school resource officers are not quip, equipped. They're not trained to do that job. And while it may give, it may give you a, a, a it may give some folks a feeling of safety, it, it's, it's an illusion, right? And it's, and it's not really real. And in fact, as I said before, it actually does the opposite for too many of our kids. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think as you, and, and, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, I'm, I'm hoping that our state will take that will look at other states and other districts across the country who are moving away from SROs. Alexandria, Virginia is a, is a prime example. They just agreed to reallocate the money they were paying for school resource offers, officers for different kind of, of mental health and uh, counselors and guidance in their buildings. They just made the decision. So that it's the we see we see the change happening across the country. I'm hoping that Delaware doesn't have to be last on this list. Yeah, I mean, you noticed how I asked the question. I just call them armed cops in schools. Um, I think the euphemism of a school resource officer tells you all you need to know about what's going on here. Uh, as you said, it's 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 a it's a it's a sort of a myth. And so it's for a myth. You have to create a, a euphemism that doesn't sound anything like what it is. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I, I certainly agree with you um, on that score. Um, so as part of that answer, you, you were talking about, um, you know, sort of making sure that that students who might be having um, psychological problems or development problems get identified and get services they need, either from social workers or psychologists or counselors uh, or other programs that might be available. And I, I think that's interesting. So this this is, a, and, I, and Shannon and I had a brief discussion about this, but I wanted to go in, go in hot because I just so happened to stumble across this uh, little article here from Technically Delaware. So it's like a tech blog sort of site for the region. Um, so I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but I wanted to read what somebody sent me and get your reaction on it. Uh, this was uh, five hours ago, so just this afternoon. Delaware schools are contracting with an AI, uh, artificial intelligence safety system called GoGuardian. Schools and parents will have more control over students' internet usage and will be alerted of at-risk behavior. Starting next year, Delaware public school students will have a new system on their devices that not only blocks dangerous and inappropriate content, but also has the ability to detect student safety and self-harm concerns, DETV reports. The new nationwide system is part of a $1.6 million content filtering and student safety project in partnership with the Delaware Department of Education, the Delaware Department of Information and Technology, and is funded by CARES Act funds allocated to Delaware Federal Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief Funds and the Governor's Emergency Relief Funds. The system GoGuardian uh, uses artificial intelligence to continuously analyze content for warning signs. Unlike many systems that use keywords that block entire blocks of content that they should have access to. For example, uh, the former Beaver College in Pennsylvania wound up changing its name to Arcadia University because its content, um, the name of its content would, would appear on explicit sites. Parents and guardians will also have enhanced control over their children's internet usage with an app that allows them to limit internet time, block specific sites, receive alerts if the child exhibits at-risk behavior. Again, I don't know what that means, uh, such as visiting websites that encourage violence or self-harm. So that's one example. And that's all it talks about. Um, you know, I certainly, you know, I understand content moderation. I certainly understand um, controlling screen time and Internet time. Uh, I wish, you know, somebody was controlling my screen time because it's terrible. Um, I, I'm a little bit concerned about using artificial intelligence to identify like to identify who needs intervention in some way um so my question to you all is uh, have you heard of this uh and if you have or even if you haven't uh, what are your thoughts about something like this um i'll go first i have not heard of that this is the first time i'm hearing hearing of this um and yeah i it raises a lot of questions for me, <laughs> um, I'm going to have to do a lot more digging to find out. Um, I think because it could it could cross a line pretty quickly, um, and so again, while safety is paramount, 
Um, and, you know, we want to address um, issues, you know, of, of kids, you know, that may be, um, that may be subject to, you know, bullying or self-harm, those kinds of things. I, 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 I can't weigh in an opinion yet because I don't know enough about it, but I would just say that my spidey sensors are up and I'd have to do some more investigating on that. Melva, do you have uh, an opinion well, on this well, one? The, these kinds of systems are always programmed by somebody. And, you know, it's it's the unconscious bias that we all live with that could end up having certain kinds of children overly represented in categories that are considered at risk or problems or, you know, needing needing negative attention. Um, so I, you know, I, I first it's the first that I've heard of this particular relationship of the state with with this group. It doesn't surprise me, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, the, the proof will the proof of its if its real utility will be in you know what ends up who ends up getting identified as at high risk and for mm -hmm. what. Um, all of these behavior intervention kinds of processes and programs are, are post-desegregation. They, they are all invented to make certain that kids stay in the boxes that subordinate them. The, the kids of color, low-income kids, by zip code kids. So, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't want to say that I'm suspicious of the state, but we've we've just we've got so much experience at this point with having with overrepresentation of certain kinds of kids whenever negative labels are assigned and you know my fear would be that you know a kid who googles black lives matters because they want to know what those people do okay would would become would put be put on some pre-terrorist list or something mm -hmm. like that i mean there are there are legislators in this state and certainly nationally who don't want kids to learn history. You know, they don't want kids to be taught the 1619 Project, which simply states the truth about how Africans came to this shore and became enslaved, right? So and how it benefited uh, this country. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, you know, we've got to, we, we have to be vigilant. We have to be vigilant. And I, I guess I'm hopeful that uh, groups like the ACLU and others are taking um, this wider lens approach about equity. And we're, we're not just focusing on, on the push out behavior. Okay, the the school to prison pipeline, but we're we're going to focus on the whole culture of equity, and we we will see the overrepresentation of children in special education as an indicator of push out behavior. Right, it's the kid who doesn't fit inside the the Eurocentric block. Um, and in my experience in parenting a boy, you know, it's the it's the black male body that's more energetic or as energetic as the white male body. But the but the white female teacher feels threatened by the black male child's energy, you know, so so we're operating on all kinds of levels of perceptions and unconscious biases. So we don't need to, we don't need to add to those problems, right? We just don't need we don't need electronic artificial intelligence mechanisms helping people um, identify problematic behavior in other people's children. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you that. Um, I guess as the kids would say online, this is vsus. It is. It's extremely suspicious. Um, I worked for a long time uh, in the corporate world, and I did work like with algorithms and with 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 score cutoffs, and and because um, the banking industry is regulated to some extent, um, we would have to go back and say, okay, well, these are the factors that we used, and this is why we rank these this way. And if you're say lending money, you can at least go back and show somebody how it works. Now they can. You know, that doesn't uh, make it a moral thing, but it's at least it's it's somewhat transparent, at least at that level. The problem with artificial intelligence and things like machine learning is that it groups things together 
and it continues to update itself by grouping. And so, for example, it's very difficult to leverage in, say, lending or collections because people need to know why you took a certain act on them as, a, say, a banker or an insurance company. So you need to go be able to back and, and explain sort of how it works. The problem with this kind of stuff is it's very, very difficult to explain how it works. And so it's ex extremely easy to create environments exactly like you say that target the people who are going to get targeted anyway that push out the people that the system needs to push out that you know uh you know the 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 people who get negative interventions are all a certain kind of of person um this is very this is extremely suspicious and one of the reasons i'm suspicious of it is you know we had this overblown thing last week about the Patriots for Delaware were endorsing a lot of reactionary um, school board uh, candidates. Um, one of the things, as you said, is the 1619 project. They don't like it. They don't know what it is, but you know they don't like it. They don't know what critical race theory is. They couldn't tell you. I have a lot. I have some intellectual problems with the 1619 project, but it's certainly historically accurate. Um, I think some of the, you know, there's nothing like you would obviously teach that. Like that's just history. Um, but again, it was a little bit overblown because, you know, just because a Facebook group has a bunch of people, you know, it doesn't really mean anything. You know, in my district, uh, Keisha Naismith uh, just just swamped out the two opponents. Um, she got more than the reactionary guy and a third person together. Um, and but it, there was one of these uh, of these lunatics who, who snuck through downstate and this is the kind of stuff that they're going like. This is the kind of stuff reactionary people are going to use to sort and to and to and to and to probably make funding decisions, not in in the favor of a holistic approach, but in a targeted reactionary approach. And so, yeah, I just that's why when I saw that, I I really wanted to bring that up uh, and not only get your thoughts on it, but just sort of report it because it was something I hadn't seen before. And I don't really follow these stories that much. You guys do a lot of teaching to me because I don't have children. And so I'm not as like every day sort of into um, schools and educational stuff. I try to keep up with it. So, you know, we don't you know, we don't get reactionary school board members. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I think this is this is the kind of thing that runs counter to, you know, taking a, a holistic approach to equity, understanding what, you know, tying it to the community and, and and just looking at it as more of a of a developmental thing than a thing that we need to test and figure out who's the best and then push out everybody else. Mm -hmm. So 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 to to do now to 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 end today with a, a little bit of uh, a glimmer of hope because I am hopeful. Shannon and I are moving around the community, uh, visiting schools that um, are candidates to become sort of model programs to use the, um, the, the, equity, the equity curriculum that the ACLU has endorsed. Um, and, and I'm encouraged that there are some places of hope out there. Um, and what I think that the real answer is not what you said, Rob, about um, you know forcing children into community schools and eliminating choice. But I think the real answer is greater choice, so that people can go to communities and join communities that they feel are responsive to who they are as people, right? Um, and and the, and the, and that happens when you walk in the door and the principal or the secretary or even the custodian greet you and they tell you, oh, they, they say, can I help you? What's going on? And the children greet you and say, um, are you lost? Why are you waiting right here? You know, it's an environment where people feel included. And we are seeing a few of those. We visited one today. And, and um, so I'm hopeful that we'll get some work going there, Robin, invite you to come out and uh, maybe even host a podcast from there. I would definitely do that. There's no question about that. I would, I would, de I would definitely do that. I would like to sit in on an American history class if I could, but that, uh, but wherever I could, uh, wherever I could be helpful, I would definitely do that. I like that stuff. Well, I, I think with some of the work with parents that that Shannon is actually planning, that it would be very, very uh, interesting for your listeners to not hear from always from those of us who are, you know, activist professionals, but to hear from the recipients and those who have the most at stake 
in in the investments that we're making in these in these educational environments. But choice choice is really important. Choice is choice remains one of the most important things that we can do for our children. Shannon, uh, last word. If you have anything you want to uh, to touch on, that's a hot topic. Anything going on in the legislature? Uh, any kind of activism or organizing people can get behind. Uh, I know Carl will be Carl will be attaching uh, some of the links that go back to uh, some of the research that Melva was talking about, and also to some of the ACLU work that's happening around education equity. Uh, but I just want to give you the opportunity to highlight some of that uh, work you're doing. Sure. So just um, in talking about some 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 of the hot bills that folks are looking out for. So um, there is a bill that I believe is in the Senate awaiting passage is the is uh, Sherry Dorsey Walker sponsored bill. Um, I'm not going to say the name because I might get the number incorrect, but it's about uh, requiring black history um, that be taught in, a, in the K to 12 uh, public schools. Um, and there are some criteria different areas that should be uh, in included in that curriculum. Um, it does not say explicitly 1619 for those who've got issues around that, <laughs> um, but it does give some parameters by which it, it should happen. Um, ACLU is in support of that. Um, I would encourage folks to contact their, their senators to say, yes, we should vote for this. This is long overdue. Um, it, it's something that we should not even have to be talking about at this point. And if we had better history, a better a better complete holistic history uh, taught to our kids around how this uh, country is established and how it functions. We may not have the kind of issues that we're having now. Um, from our work perspective, ACLU, we're, Melba touched on that we're looking to um, expand on our fair discipline work to include to have more equity components of the work that will really lend itself to not just talk about how more restorative practices in schools, understanding implicit bias, understanding how trauma impacts schools, but how we can make sure that we're having um, equitable um, opportunities to uh, accelerate learning and more rigorous courses for our students, because at the end of the day, that's what it's really about. And so we're looking to um, expand on that program, and hopefully uh, we would love to invite you back, Rob, to one of our sites uh, come the fall. Uh, to advertise that, so that's one of one of the major pieces of work that I'll be working on in the next uh, in the foreseeable future. <laughs> cool, yeah, I, I would definitely uh, be down for something like that for sure. Um, well, there you go, folks. Uh, that number two of the Delaware Justice Team series. Uh, we're going to be bringing you more of these um, on specific topics, so you understand how they relate to the legislature, some new things that are coming up, uh, what the hot thinking is, so you don't have uh, sort of old mindset. Um, and we're going to keep at it. So you know where to reach us. Patreon.com slash The Highlands Bunker at Highlands Bunker on Twitter. Uh, we'll have the ACLU and all of the other links in the show notes. And make sure you're looking at DelawareCall.com. Uh, we're, we're doing criticism. We're doing a lot of new uh, sort of campaign, issue campaign reporting. So stick on that and we'll, we'll have you updated. And uh, you won't be reading, uh, you won't be getting your consent manufactured uh, by the Wilmington News Journal. So thanks, everybody. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. And Melba, thank you so much for taking the time. You're welcome. Good luck. <laughs> See you soon. The left is best.